BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Welcome to this special live recording of the Seneca Podcast here in Chicago, Illinois. Hello, Chicago! I am Kaiser Guo, and we are here tonight with this terrific and very handsome and well-appointed crowd uh, from uh, Chicago by an event put on by the University of Chicago's Becker Friedman Institute for Economics, a program that pulls together folks from Chicago's Booth School of Business with its Kenneth G. Griffin Department of Economics, its Harris School of Public Policy, and its Law School. Becker Friedman has partnered with the Paulson Institute and its in-house think tank Macro Polo, Still, the cleverest name ever given to an organization dedicated to research on China, Macro Polo. Let that sink in for a little while. It's amazing. Mm -hmm. And uh, with the China Project, of which this podcast is a proud part, uh, and we are all joining together to bring you tonight's program, Decoding China, China's Economic Miracle Interrupted. A huge thank you to our friends at the Becker Friedman Institute and at the Paulson Institute for making this happen in this magical spot. The sun's coming down. If you, if you look at the beauty of the, just the amazing Chicago skyline, what of you? If I'm, you know, sort of not listening and wandering off distracted, you'll know exactly why. So there's there's so much to talk about. So let's let's jump in. Uh, all summer long, we have heard deep pessimism about the state of the Chinese economy. There is a long litany of woes that have been repeated and amplified to the extent that I've gotten, frankly, kind of suspicious. Uh, you know, flagging consumer demand. We all know stubbornly high savings rate accompanying that. The obvious problems faced now by major residential realty developers like Evergrande and Country Garden, high levels of youth unemployment, and of course, enormous local government debt. Now, none of my guests today are the sort of economists that American presidents and CEOs have often wished they had at hand. That is, economists with only one hand, and they don't always say on the one hand and on the other hand. As for me, I don't mind hearing or engaging a little on the one hand myself. So on the one hand, ordinarily, when I do hear this level of sort of kind of hyper-pessimism, uh, this sheer volume of doomsaying, uh, much of it built on, I think, frankly, motivated reasoning, my instinct is to be very skeptical. Uh, China, after all, has you know, de defeated, has defied predictions of doom many a time, including in the Asian financial crisis of 1997 and in the, you know, Great Recession after 2008, the crisis of 2015 when the Chinese stock market plummeted. It seems like it's always able to muddle through. But on the other hand, as a growing number of people whose views I very much trust have come, eh, come back from trips 
to China recently, uh, it's clear to me that the pessimism isn't by any t means limited just to these distant economists or reporters writing about China from the outside. So when we hear about the, well, the PTSD, the shell shock uh, caused in places like Shanghai by the lockdowns and by the chaotic, confusing end to the COVID restrictions, uh, coupled with, you know, this kind of flagging exports, uh, you know, weak signals from the manufacturing sector, unemployment, and of course, confusion in policy direction overall. I, I do worry. I take the bears a little more seriously. And yet, back to that other hand, as an economist who I greatly respect, especially, uh, he, he said, uh, this is Arthur Krober from Gavin called Dragonomics. Uh, he gave a very good talk at Harvard recently. He said that this bad news has been enlisted by some in claiming that their grand narratives going back decades were correct all along, <coughs> Gordon Chang. <coughs> Um, a, a relatively small amount of, of data, he notes, is being made to do an awful lot of work. That's true. So today is really all about right-sizing the problem, where the negativity might perhaps be warranted and where it certainly is not, as well as identifying problems that perhaps aren't being given sufficient attention in the reportage that we're all reading. We'll talk about the nature of the crisis and the nature of the state response, such as it is. So joining me to attack this important question with both hands, as it were, uh, and to try to get this right is Changtai Xie, who is Phyllis and Erwin Winkelried, Distinguished Service Professor of Economics at the Booth School and specializes in development and growth in the developing world. He is an elected member of the Academia Sinica, I like that name, and a two-time recipient of the Sunye Fung Prize. Changtai, welcome to Sinica. Thank Good you. Good Great to be here. Yeah. Good up. Also joining is Lizzie Lee, who is well known to folks who listen to Seneca or who follow the China Project. She is the host of our YouTube show, The Signal with Lizzie Lee, where she does interviews with amazing people, uh, and she's just a really expert interviewer. Lizzie also hosts the Chinese language show Wall Street TV, Wall Street Today, rather, which is something I highly recommend. It's about the only non-lunatic Chinese language programming. I mean, you know, everything else is either like hardcore party line or freaking Falun Gong or, you know, or, or what's that kook's name? Guang uh, Gui, right? But then, and then there's Lizzie, who's like an island of sanity the on YouTube. And the Chinese the bar is pretty low. <laughs> anyway, um, last time that we were together with Damien here was here in Chicago. Right. Uh, our friends at the Chicago Council summoned us uh, to do a sort of roundup of the 20th Party Congress, where some very, very interesting remarks were made. That takes us, of course, to Damien Ma, who is director of Macropolo, the think tank of the Paulson Institute. Damien is the co-author of a great book, which I'm still constantly recommending to people. It's really stood the test of time. It's called In Line Behind a Billion People, and it really looks at a lot of issues related to China's economy and politics through the lens of scarcity. It's a very, very good book. I highly recommend it. Damien is always one of the people I turn to for the straight dope on what's happening in the Chinese economy. Damien, great to see you, man. Very good to see you. Lizzie, Changtai, what a great crowd we had. So, Damien, let me start with you. You were just in China. You got back just a little over a week ago. I and uh, you, you had both high-level meetings and some means or boots on the ground, some shoe leather work, just talking to people who are either decision makers, you know, economic decision makers at the enterprise level or above, and people who are just directly affected by the economy in China, people who have experienced 
the end, the chaotic end of COVID and everything. What's the skinny? What's your your overall takeaway from talking to people? Are things as bad as they say? Well, let me give uh, sort of two quick, uh, two quick but different observations. I think Kaiser, like you or Lizzie, you know, when we go to China, we tend to not just stay in, in the hotel. Uh, I got there a few days early, so I could, you know, first walk around, kind of do my own observations. Small things like, are the malls full, mm. right? Uh, are people buying things? Uh, how, how normal does Beijing look? Uh, and, you know, you know, caveat that, you know, I mostly interacted with a very small slice of Beijing elites. So they're not what I would call the true Lao Baixing, right? Uh, they, are, they are still Beijing elites. So take that with a grain of salt. But, you know, and I talked to Chinese colleagues and talked to, you know, the dwindling, the dwindling number of uh, foreign correspondents who are, who are still, who are still uh, fighting the good fight in Beijing, just to kind of get, get a pulse, uh, of, of, you know, uh, from the people and, you know, had my share of cabbie conversations. Oh, those cabbie um, conversations. Uh, and the reason I wanted to have the cabbie conversations, this is probably one uh, interesting tangential uh, observation is that uh, something like 90% of Beijing uh, cabs are now electric vehicles made uh-huh. by a state-owned enterprise. Uh, this really happened over the last several years. So if you want to see the transformation in electric vehicles, look no further than Beijing City itself. And this is purely a state-mandated drive. Uh, they basically wanted to help a state-owned enterprise. So if you went in, if, if you went to China prior to the pandemic, you would have probably uh, ridden in a, a, a South Korean Hyundai. Those ba- basically do not exist anymore. So they're all electric vehicles now. So if you want to kind of get a little s- small slice of that change, Beijing does uh, does give you uh, uh, you know that that little insight. But in terms of the, the economy, I'll just say a couple things, and I think they're the things we're going to get into quite a bit with the other guests as well. I think talking to you know talking to people, uh, talk, 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 talking to friends and colleagues, there does seem to be a sense of just uh, things are not going that well. Mm. People are uh, not seeing the the bright light at the end of the tunnel in terms of you know the economy. Uh, so I think. And in this sense, the Chinese government is probably correct in diagnosing that there is a lack of confidence among households about where the economy is going. The malls were full, but but I think it is also somewhat true that people are not, uh, you know, you, you did not see a lot of sort of you know purchasing behavior, uh, which which I thought was kind of interesting. There was a lot of more window shopping, so to speak, than people actually, you know, pulling out their credit cards. Although I guess not credit card, you know, paying with Alipay or WeChat. Because that's that's all you can do these days in Beijing. Um, I think that that struggle is real, and I think at the policy level, uh, what's interesting is I, I think they understand that that this is a problem. Uh, but there is, uh, from 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 what I can tell, a very strong debate about really what to do about it. Yeah. Um, because you know, there's a lot of arguments, and we're going to get get into you know the different arguments. But I think it, you know it's it's tough to turn around. Uh, uh, consumer and household competence. Uh, it, it takes a while. It takes a combination of policy, it takes a combination of incentives, and also, you know, um, uh, you know, also sending sending very credible, consistent signals uh, for a period of time to get people to understand where DK is going. And I think part of the problem that the that the current leadership has is that it's sending very mixed signals about what's happening to the economy and what they intend to do about it. And I think that's injecting more confusion. To your average Chinese household, so I think it's a very tough conundrum, and if they don't turn that around, uh, it's it's very very hard to sustain the growth rate that they want, which is why they may want to stimulate, but stimulus will get you a very sort of short term bump, 
They may get you, you know, that might allow them to meet their 5% target for the year, but what happens in 2024? So this is th- th- this is something that they're that they're truly grappling with, and 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 I really got that sense from talking to you know average Chinese beginners. Yeah. So excellent. Uh, there there are um, two. I mean, not surprisingly, there are two other historical financial crises that the current situation is often compared to. One of them, of course, is the 2008 financial crisis that started in the U.S. retail housing market, but also uh, the the malaise that beset Japan beginning right around 1990. Uh, that one is 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 brought up an awful lot. Lizzie, I know you have some thoughts on this. I'm, I'm wondering whether you think that uh, China is also about to enter a long period of stagnation and painfully slow growth. Uh, is is there are there meaningful ways in which China right now is is comparable to Japan then? Right. So, you know, in general, I'm always against making those quick and dirty historical analogies because I think they usually are more misleading than educational. Um, in terms of Japan, my argument is that Japan's problem is not really an asset market problem. It's a structural problem in the sense that the Japanese economy has its interlinked financial sector and corporate sector co-collateralized by its land value. So, a piece of asset prices goes down, the entire system goes down with it. Uh, it reminds me of Charleston, those uh, historical buildings in Charleston. So if you have a spark of fire, the entire city burned down. The problem is not the fire. The problem is how the city is structured. In China, the system is much more fragmented, uh, in actually intentionally so. So there's not much financial linkage between China's corporate sector and its financial sector. China's problems are those, you know, much more fragmented pockets of problems. You have cysts and tumors in uh, local governments, in rural banks. But those problems tend to be separate from each other. So the potential of a horizontal, like all-out contagion, I would say, is low. So, you know, people talk about whether China is going to lose another 20 years, another 30 years, like Japan. The fundamental problem is quite different. Um, the, the similarity is only on the surface. So that's that's Japan. For the uh, 2008 analogy, I would actually argue the property market now in China now is less like pre-2008 United States than a few years ago, than say, you know, 2015. And that's a deliberate policy choice. China has been aggressively reducing its corporate sector's exposure to property market woes in the, for, the, for, the, for the past few years. I mean, yes, property market loans are still a substantial part of commercial banks' assets, but those are individual uh, house mortgages quite unlike the United States. And we know uh, Chinese households pay hefty, hefty down payments, and those loans are recourse loans. So banks can claim alternate assets if um, they default. So that's a relatively safe, uh, it was say like a safe net for banks. So commercial banks, if you look at their balance sheet, they're actually quite solid. That's very different from pre-2008 in the United States. So just make those two. Um, yeah, let me turn to Chung Tai and ask you about the 2008 comparisons that are also, uh, you know, that are so often made. Uh, let's start by, you know, looking at the, the amount of leverage in the system. I mean, that's that's one thing we all probably are aware of the very, very high percentage of the cost of a home that you have to put down, whether you're a first-time or, or a multiple-time home buyer in China, and the amount actually uh, of of equity that people have in their homes right now. Uh, but the other the other thing that seems to be missing is, you know, we don't have 
mortgage-backed securities in China where you know that we had here. We don't have collateralized debt obligations and credit default swaps that we're betting against those CDOs, right? Um, are we less, is China less vulnerable in that regard? Let me just say three things. I, I think that first, l- l- let me just repeat what Lizzie said. That I think that it is always dangerous, but it's, always, it's very easy to draw analogies, right? To, to, to draw uh, analogies. But most of the time, you know, the world is complicated and they're, they can be very misleading. I mean, they, they, they can be very misleading. So I, let me just say, I, I, I think that if I think about sort of sort of two views that I see, which is that China needs a stimulus, uh, a stimulus, and then China has a confidence problem. I think that that is a misleading way to think about what's going uh, to what's to what's going on now. I, I think the really the way I think about what China is is going through now, it's a it's a combination of two things. So first, specifically uh, on on Kaiser's question, I think about the first issue, and and, and I like to think about that as 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 a reallocation problem, uh, as as a real that that. I think that there's no question that there has been uh, overexpansion on in the housing sector in China. That uh, what does that mean? It 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 means that because of the housing price bubble and because of other factors, too much resources have been dedicated to the real estate sector. Say in the last fifteen or so years, right? What do you do about that, right? Well, exactly the wrong thing to be doing is to double up, right? Is is to double. That's exactly what you don't want to do because that's going to make the reallocation problem down the line even worse, right? What would constitute doubling down on this right now? You mean supporting? Yeah, yeah. uh, Either some form of stimulus that supports the real estate sector, but let me just say some of the and and part of the problem is is that. You know, there's always going to be short-run pain whenever there is an adjustment process. There is adjust- Let me just say, some of that has already taken place. Like, when I saw, like, like, like the beginning of this process was really starting in uh, 2018, when you start to see the crackdown of some of the largest Chinese conglomerates, the crackdown on Armbang, the crackdown on... On the the gray rhinos, right? The gray rhinos. Actually, since we're here, for those of you who who can look across the street, if you see those three towers right across the street, that was initially a Wanda project, Dalian Wanda, yeah. right? That the 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 three towers that you see just across the river, you know, uh, two hundred yards from where we, we we are, and then one of the consequences of the crackdown on the Wanda group starting in 2018 was that they were forced to sell off. Uh, those three towers. So it's now called Vista Towers, right? Uh, Vista Towers and the new owners got it on the cheap because the Wanda Group was forced to sell that, not just that property, but lots of the the uh, the uh, other stuff. Now, there's still a lot left to be done. I'm not privy to the internal discussions of the party on how they're planning to deal with this. But let me just give you, I think, what I think is a right historical analogy uh, to think about this I- issue, which is that it's really not 2008, but it's 1998. 
So if you think about what happened in the 1998, China put in place this program that in, in I don't know whether this was the official name of the program, but this what people started to call it, which is uh, grasp the large, let go the small. So it was essentially a program put in place by uh, Premier Zhu Rongji to deal with another big reallocation problem. And what was the big the big reallocation problem then was uh, bloated state owned enterprise. It was a bloated state owned enterprise. It was that you you had you know a very large number. I mean, there's some disputes about what the precise number is. Like a very large share of capital, a very large share of the resources of the economy was going to inefficient state-owned firms. And it's, I think it's the same question, which is, what do you do with that? There is going to be short-run pain. Companies need to be closed. People are going to lose their jobs. You can postpone the pain by continuing to subsidize these companies by just renewing the loans and just kicking the can down the road. And that's not what China chose to do in 1998. It put this plan in place, which led to a lot of short-run pain. Uh, it, it, it led to a tremendous amount of short-run pain, but it was the largest closure and privatization programs that I've ever seen in the world. Uh, in the world, a large number of firms were closed down. A large number of firms were privatized. There are interesting details about what privatization meant. We can talk about that next. But lots of people lost their job. And this sort of was the beginning of the process where, you know, it released the resources eventually for the millions of entrepreneurial private firms to eventually emerge and grow in uh, China. There are lots of details about what happened. There, there, was, there, there were these uh, institutions that were built on the financial side for, we can talk about the asset management companies that were built in place. So there are all kinds of, of that. It's not just that program, but it, it was coupled with lots of other things that, that, that were put in place at the same time. Now, I want to say, I don't know whether something like this is in the cards. That really is a short run issue. I mean, it's, it's the, and the question is whether this short run issue eventually it could become a long run issue if it's not resolved. Right. And especially since the scale of it is very different. I mean, we're talking about breaking and resetting a bone, right? We're talking about, it's not just pulling off a Band-Aid. We're talking about something, a major structural readjustment. And let's look what happened in 99 when, you know, China was a much smaller portion of the global economy. Uh, and already it was incredibly painful domestically. I think you could draw a direct line to the Falun Gong, uh, rise of Falun Gong in the sit-ins, uh, in potentially de de politically destabilizing events in in that time, right? Um, yeah, uh, so today, much bigger, much more integrated, much more risk of global contagion. In terms of the risk, in terms of the effect in the world, I think, I think it's absolutely right, but in terms of the scale of the problem in China, I think it's much smaller. Okay, right. oh, that's, that's yeah. really... In, in, in terms of the scale, now, whether there is, I'm going to say, the equivalent of uh, Zhu Rongji and the, the and the people that were around him at the time, uh, you know, one of the key people at the time was uh, Wang Qishan. Uh, 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 at the time, that was uh, there. Whether there's that team, and whether you know, I I don't know, right? I I, I don't know. Uh, but I'll just say that when I look at other countries of the world, the vast majority of the countries in, around the world that face this kind of problem, they never solve it. Right, because it's painful, and if things that are painful, you just don't do it. So I want to drill down on this a little bit with with Lizzie. 
we, we know that there's nothing that shakes confidence in the economy more than uncertainty. And I think what I hear a lot of complaints about are sort of mm-hmm. the lack of clear signals right. and intention to backstop right. coming from the, the leadership. I mean, in 1998, mm-hmm. to Chantai's point, we had Zhong Ji, you know, fairly firm hand on the tiller. We had, you know, Wang Qishan. Uh, today, you know, we're, we're just coming out of the transition. We have a relatively new premier, Li Qiang, and, uh, you know, He Lifeng just now appointed. Uh, do we have the same sort of caliber of, right. of, you know, administrative management of the economy? And Right. So that's a really good question. I mean, I've been pondering this term crisis of confidence as people talk about it in the media a lot. Like, what do we actually mean by crisis of confidence, right? So, like Damien, I also had the, um, the opportunity to interact with a cross-section of Chinese citizens. Some of them are entrepreneurs. Uh, some of them are low government officials. Some of them are recent college grads. And I do get the sense that there is this general sense of anxiety and unease, which I have not seen before. I mean, we Chinese are a grumpy bunch. We complain about parents complain about kids, complain about neighbors, et cetera, et cetera. But this time, I feel like the grudge is very much pointed toward current policymakers, even to the top leadership. And the the, the general sense is that there's something amiss there, and they're not quite sure the direction this country is heading is what they imagine to be. So there's that real sense of of anxiety here. How much of a product of the... the the COVID closure and the lockdowns. So yeah, so we can definitely talk about that. But like, my point is like, that is actually not consistent with the raw economic data you see. Uh-huh. If you look at the data, I mean, first half of the year, consumption actually went up by more than uh, 8%. Wage and disposable income went up more than 6%. It's not breakneck pace by any uh, stretch of imagination, but it's not that bad. I mean, it's it's not great by Chinese standard, but mm. it's not a picture of doom and, and gloom. So where does this sense of anxiety, the sense of we are completely in the wrong direction, there's no hope, there's no tomorrow coming from? Again, like my thinking on this is still very much fluid, but I think it's not quite a crisis of confidence. It's, it's more like what happens when there's this, this huge gap between your expectation and reality. If you are born into a middle-class Chinese household, there are certain things that you take to be true, right? Your parents worked really hard. They bought a house. They already paid down the mortgage. Um, you have your family wealth stored in your house, which will appreciate quite a lot. And that's going to be a decent uh, inheritance to you, right? And your parents you invest really heavily in your education. Most of the college generation, uh, college graduates uh, now are from one child uh, household. So, you know, you study really hard, your parents invest in your education, you go to a really good college, and you kind of expect to be able to get a job uh, in the tech sector, in the financial sector, upon graduation, you know, have a really lucrative career. That's sort of the expectation that has been building in people's mind for the past 10 plus years. Like now that equilibrium has been broken, right? First, you have this years of tech crackdowns, right? All the high-flying tech companies and financial companies are cutting. They're not recruiting anymore. Um, those kind of lucrative jobs are just not there. And then you have three years of lockdowns, right? And then you have this property market thing where family wealth is now in, in jeopardy. So basically every single piece of that equation is, is kind of 
it's no longer there. Like what you take to be 100% certain in the future is it's just not there. So I would say it's not really a crisis of confidence. It's a it's that gap between reality between between you know what you currently see and 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 dreams. So I think that helps explain one puzzling phenomena. If you go to those recruiting fairs in China, they're all empty, right? If youth unemployment is at 20%, you would imagine that people are eager to find jobs. They will take whatever is available out there. But why are people not showing up at those recruiting fairs? That's because those jobs that are offered are not the kind of jobs they want. So when we talk about Chinese youth unemployment at 20%, which is a historical level for China, I think, you know, by, by, by some standard, people should be on the street, right? So people should be causing all kinds of social, social unrest. But that's not what we see in China. I think people are disillusioned, but it's not like they cannot find jobs. They have to starve on the street. That's not what, what's really going on. But back to Chang Tai's point, I think what's really different this time is, you know, when the central leadership, when, when Xi Jinping and Li Qiang announces those piecemeal measures to, 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 you know, to stimulate, to remedy the economy, the market just doesn't really take that, mm. which is quite interesting. So, I mean, there are multiple hypotheses of what's actually going on. Um, but, you know, one thing that I think is quite different from Zhu Rongji's time and now is Zhu Rongji is not one single person. Zhu Rongji has a team of capable economic yeah. lieutenants who can actually execute, uh, you know, execute his plans, right? And many of them went on to be some of the you know, the Dou Jiwei, the Wang yeah. Qishan, the people, people like that. Many of those people have been purged um, by Xi Jinping during past years of anti-corruption campaigns. Especially, you know, Guang Daxi, Guo Kaihang, all those Zhu Rongji lieutenants, they were, you know, they were hit really hard during the, the anti-corruption campaign. So there's this general sense that the people who can do this are just not there. And I would say the opposite, like there are so many people sitting on their hands basically waiting for directions from the very top leadership because they are afraid of the potential retributions. Like, if what if, what if I, I do this and something went wrong, I might as well just, you know, listen to whatever the top dictates to me. So that kind of inaction, that kind of inertia, I think is what's really problematic this time. And I don't have a really good solution to that, but this is what I see. And I just wanted to share that with our audience. Underlying a lot of this is sort of a, a, a bigger question of, China's overall economic direction and what it is that, that Xi Jinping actually wants, the shape of the Chinese economy in his longer term view. And this is something that you've talked about a lot. And you actually identified back in 2017, I think you and Evan Feigenbaum wrote a, a, a paper that pushed finger on this, I think proved very prescient. And we've seen these ideas echoed again out of the 20th Party Congress. Uh, this move away from GDP uberalis toward a more sort of qualitative growth, right? Can you talk a little bit about that idea? And I'd love Chang Tai to weigh in as well about, you know, your thoughts on what it is that Xi and the current Chinese leadership want the Chinese economy to be and to do. We're no longer talking about KPIs for local officials measured in terms of GDP growth, but rather maybe in nanometers, as you once kind of right. half-jokingly said, but accurately said. Right. So we published a piece uh, basically with the title, Nanometers Over GDP. And the, the idea is to capture, crystallize this, this sense that 
uh, you know, for 25 years, people were uh, very much accustomed to, uh, you know, Chinese juicing growth to meet a certain target, right? Um, there was this, even this term in markets called the wind jab output. So every time the economy would, would tank, they would do counter-cyclical stimulus because they want to achieve roughly 7 to 8% growth because that, that fixation was really important. But starting the 14th five-year plan, it was very clear that the top leadership, in particular uh, Xi Jinping, decided that was not going to be the case anymore. He said, we're not going to really have a, you know, we'll have a range, we'll still sort of think about growth, but basically that target is now no longer valid. We shouldn't fix, uh, we shouldn't, you know, uh, you know, fixate our entire growth strategy around that. So that's important because the, the problem is that they didn't, you know, they didn't really clarify what the floor is going to be, right? So, you know, how, how far can this fall? Are we talking 2%, 3%? What are they satisfied with? And I think this is where I would, I think, uh, you know, uh, sort of agree and also disagree with what uh, Chantai and Lizzie said. Uh, you know, I think we can all agree that this is not a 2008 Lehman Brother kind of housing crisis, uh, you know, a problem. And this is not what uh, Lizzie says, sort of a Japanese style balance sheet recession, which is, uh, you know, uh, uh, I think Richard Ku, uh, you know, branded that. Right. I think the analogy with the late 90s holds, it is a uh, sort of debt problem. It just last time it was debt on the balance sheet of state-owned enterprises. This time the debt is primarily on local government, right? You put but, it but, but, at but, $5 trillion, then it's that risk. Right, so we can uh, get to that number. But but the main thing is that if you think about it, the macro conditions, though, are quite different now than it was in the late 1990s. So let's recount what happened. China was about to enter the World Trade Organization. Right, right, right at the end in the 1990s. That really gave it a big lift in growth. Right. And then China had in 96, 97, it just privatized the property sector. Right. That was a big growth driver. Right. Now you have just the opposite. The property sector is declining and they're not really trying to save it as much as we think. There is no WTO. There's nothing coming that way. So I guess the question is deleveraging might be the right call. But to do it in a low growth environment when it's not clear what the future growth drivers are going to be, is that too risky of a gamble to execute right now when the entire system is sort of saying, we don't care that much about GDP growth anymore, right? So when you grow, even if you take on debt, you can actually inflate away that debt if you have inflation. So, so actually, you know, that just becomes a smaller portion of GDP over time. That's essentially what happened since the 1990s. But, but unpack this right? a little bit. Tell so, me, what's the positive vision? What is, what do they hope to achieve when they talk about qualitative growth? What do they, what does he really mean? Well, I think, you know, this, this is my own interpretation. My view is that China wants to become the Amazon of countries. Amazon is the everything store. China wants to be the make everything country. Uh, essentially, they really think they can, uh, you know, if you think about 1990s, what was the main moniker attached to China? Factory of the world. world. 2023, what did China say to do? Also factory of the world. Just those factories have changed from socks and Nike shoes to batteries and low-end chips and, and all those technology products. And I think China really feels it's got uh, a, a strong competitive, uh, you know, on advantage in all these mid-range tech supply chains manufacturing. And, you know, obviously I'm exaggerating to say make everything, but I think the strategy is can we attract a global supply chain ecosystem to China, make it there, and sort of export it around the world, uh, that could, you know, lend it the growth that it might need, that, that might be to offset some of the other growth drivers that are slowing down. Lizzie, you had an interesting way of talking about it. Uh, you used a martial arts metaphor. You said it, it's, it's 
you know, lian nei gong, uh, I don't know how to translate that, sort of like your internal, like cultivating internal. Right. I think I, I, I yeah, I, I agree with, you know, um, Damien's framing, but I, I would use a slightly different wor- word. I think China is really focusing on resilience of its system. So it's not, so I mean, here in the United States, we kind of, we tend to focus on the final product. When we want to develop the EV industry, we focus on consumers, uh, cars, right? And that's what we focus on, you know, po- focus our subsidies and policies, policymakers' energies on. In China, I think they take a much more holistic uh, view on what EV means. They started from rare minerals down to infrastructure, down to batteries, down to the cocktail of government subsidies, tech breaks, and uh, you know, consumer tax credits to the final product itself. So that's a much more, I would say, vertical way of thinking about what a product actually means. And by the way, that ensures that the whole system has enough flexibility. So if you want to, uh, if you want to attack a single part of that system. We want to make sure that there's enough fluidity in the system itself for the system to heal itself. So, you know, a single, um, you know, act of sanction won't break the entire system. I think that's what I mean by neigong. It's, it's the qi. It's, it's the, the circulation that, that matters. And, you know, I, I think like, at least, but is that also because the external environment is just not yes. as conducive to yes, yes. Chinese absolutely. products? Absolutely. You know? And, you know, one thing that I noticed is that there's a lot of focus on adapt, like how to adapt to hostile external environment as, as, they, as they speak of, as we can see from the case of Huawei, right? And I think they expect that to happen in the future. So they sort of preempt future sanctions and restrictions by making sure there's enough leeway in the system to have at least three or five years of um, buffer to, to sort of um, to, to sustain that attack, right? So Huawei did not survive by, you know, making trailblazing breakthroughs in, in 5G in chips. Huawei literally found a get around. Huawei developed software system to get around hardware restrictions. Huawei developed those chiplets quite literally by stacking sort of inferior chips together to achieve roughly the same thing as those high-speed chips chips can do. I think that's what China has gotten really good at. Like, for most of the business and industrial organizations, sort of top technology is actually not necessary. You just need to find something that works and execute that really well. And I think that's sort of what China's focusing on, just, mm. um, just, just sort of my observation. Shantai, how would you describe, say you talked about this uh, period of readjustment that we're in right now. What's the end goal of that readjustment? What is the imagined end state post-readjustment? Let me just say, I wanna, I'm going to get to your question, but let me just say that I just, I, I think there's something else. There, there's something else. And I asked this question and uh, I, I don't, uh, but I'm going to ask the question to the other people on the panel because I, I don't have an answer. There also just seems to be something more than resilience. And I, I, I don't know what it is about this view that certain things, that, that, that certain products or certain technologies are the ones that are valid mm-hmm. and other things are invalid. Yeah. Uh, so let me just, the, the, uh, maybe the, a, the a example is that, you know, there is that 
semiconductor chips are a real thing and it's something that China needs to be and 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 it'd be great if China were good at the making semiconductor chips but coming up with the software the the very best software in the world to to design semiconductor chips that's not a real thing uh, uh and I I don't quite I, I, I'm, I'm not sure that, that, that they would classify that as not a real thing the, the things that they think are not real things are you know creating complex financial derivative-based product, doing social media. They don't want their best and brightest being steered into, like in the United States, they want their physicists to graduate from Tsinghua and freaking do physics. They don't want them to go work for, you know, a social media company or go work for a bank to design, you know, speculative products. But right? the question is, I mean, fine. I mean, for some products, you can say that they're negative externalities, right? They're 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 negative. But why is a chip company or the revenues of from a chip company more valid than the revenue of uh, Alibaba, say, right? Uh, but there there's a very clear sense in which you know one company is really valuable and the other company is less so because they want to be Germany. But why? Because they, they, because they really honestly believe and this is no, no, no. But I, 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 I get into this in this well, uh, because documentary because, because software, platform, social media has social political ramifications. Ultimately, that's only a part. Chip, of it. A chip does. I mean, that's one factor. A chip is a chip. You know, it's it, it's it it it's, it doesn't it doesn't have those it doesn't have that baggage. No, but maybe, but even something like food delivery, uh, software for food delivery, that that has no political ramifications. But my sense that you, if you ask them, they're like. Who cares, right? Uh, if, if you come up with a better food food delivery system, and I, they, well, I mean, my, my, you were the one who introduced this phrase earlier in the conversation: grasp the heavy, let go the light. This is exactly what they believe they are doing right now. Right, that's what yeah, they, they so, believe so, themselves. So, so, so let me what just, was the phrase? They, China, Arthur Kroeber, a great talk you should check out. He says. China wants to be a Leninist, Leninist Germany. Germany. <laughs> you know, I think that's exactly the right phrase. But let me just ask the the question: Is you know that you know? Let, let me just pull two companies. Nvidia is one, right? That 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 sure. is one. It's the leading uh, uh, chip, maker, yeah. uh, chip company in the U.S. And if for those of you who know Nvidia, Nvidia makes nothing, right? It just designs chips. It's just incredibly good at chip design and they also are really good at doing the software for for a yeah but it makes nothing right it makes nothing so think about nvidia versus taiwan semiconductor right which you know taiwan semiconductor what they know how to do really well is them is them is them actually make it right and i guess for my vantage point as an economist i think both of these things are incredibly valuable are, are incredible how valuable they are well it's it's what people are willing to pay <laughs> uh, for for these two things, but the leaders of the party, I they I, they they I think they think about it differently, and I I don't fully understand why. I I don't fully uh, uh, understand why. Let me just give, say, I, so I think that there's one thing there, right? There there's one thing, or like, so say you know, uh, software to tutor kids. Clearly, that's not that uh, that that's of no value. But why not, right? Uh, uh, I mean, kids learn, and uh, 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 well, in this case, they believe clearly that this creates social problems by, you know, inequity, just by by you know inequality, um, the inequality of opportunity, right? That's in this case. I don't think that they would 
look at you know one part of the the value chain and another part of the value chain in something like semiconductors and say this part isn't important and this part is. I think that um, when it comes to semiconductors, though, they do believe that the manufacturing process is absolutely vital and that they should focus on never stopping manufacturing because they really buy into this idea that process knowledge, that the actual uh, innovative advantage conferred by continuing to manufacture is very real. I think think another fact is just China has basically converged with the West on software on, on a lot of the you know, on the app economy i mean china frankly makes some of the best apps in the world already right so yeah. the gaps where they feel they're still deficient in is is in a lot of these you know har, you know hardware like hardware like we could go on with this for a while but i want to get back into a really cheery topic which is local debt <laughs> <laughs> i mean i think this is uh, so damien macropolo recently put out uh an estimate that there's about five trillion dollars of of local debt that's at risk in the next three, of default in the next three Potentially, years. Potentially, yes. Let's just put that in perspective. What was 2023, the projected GDP is $19.4 trillion. So we're talking about north of of, of 20% of right. of, of Well, but, but remember, the, the debt to GDP, but the debt to GDP ratio is way, way, you know, it's always higher, right? It's so always higher, that, right. That is quite a bit. But I want to ask Shanghai, uh, what does an actual debt crisis look like in China? What, what are the ramifications? What are the spillovers? What sectors are, are uh, I mean, if you are a money manager and you're looking at China, where do you steer away from? Where do you now, uh, where do you think you want to limit your exposure in China, China where we start seeing massive default of local government debt? Let me just first give a direct answer to the IA. It's clearly the property sector, uh, but uh, the, the, the property sector there could be some part of the financial institutions like you know there there's like if you think about sort of where a lot of the action is taking place it's it's really in the combination of these local financing vehicles and shadow banking some of these we have data a lot of these we don't right so so yeah, there's a, a bunch of it but let me just push back on that that i don't think that really is the biggest issue i i i don't think that really is the biggest issue. i think the biggest issue is sort of what lizzie was talking about, which is vaguely, it's about, yeah, I call it this, I mean, first, it's it's this view that things have changed in China. And I want to hone in on one thing. When I think back, so let, let me put, put it this way. I think that the one way I think about China for a long time is that despite the fact that there's there are no formal property rights, there was this very clear sense about what the rules of the game were. That is, if I'm an entrepreneur, I don't engage in politics. I find if they want to make me a member of the local uh, national party's Congress, I will do it, of course. But if I don't engage in politics, I will be left alone. I, I, I will, will be left alone, although there's, there's nothing formal about it. My property rights are going to be protected, I can grow, I can I can make money, I can accumulate my wealth. I think of it almost like this marriage, right? There's, there's like this, if I think about what a good marriage is, it's about there are clear expectations uh, on both sides about what proper behaviors. Nothing is written down, of course, right? Uh, 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 it's written down, there's no prenup, right? Uh, there, uh, uh, no prenup. After the fact, I think that what happened last year, 
may have shattered that contract, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, 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 shattered that shattered that contract. Like things that I thought only happens to dissidents, things that only happen to somebody like Jack Ma. You know, I think part I, I didn't think about it then, but it, it may be the sense of what happened in 2022 is that hey, the party can actually be really, really crazy. The party can actually do really crazy stuff, and this crazy stuff can happen to me, even if I've done nothing. That may be part of it. I, I don't quite know how to quantify it, and I, you know, I'm curious to know your views on like how, how much it's going, but it's almost like I think of it as like like the breakdown of a marriage, uh, of, of, of a marriage that I, you know, these were the things that I believed about you, and now I don't believe it. I, I don't, I don't uh, believe it. You and Lizzie are apparently on the same wavelength because recently she was on our sister podcast, the China Global South podcast. Yeah. And uh, talking about this, the same sort of breakdown of the, the un- informal the contract. contract right. Right, yeah, right. yeah. Interesting. I want to, uh, we only have a few minutes left. I, I really want to focus on one final big question. Now I'll start with Damien, which is okay. what should U.S. policy do? We seem to be sort of all indulging in a kind of schadenfreude, looking at, 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 at China's travails economically and almost gloating over it. But, you know, China is deeply interconnected. Contagion, I mean, it could bring our house down as well. It could ne- in- impact us negatively. What is wise American policy when it comes to, to China right now in terms of supporting or helping along its, its uh, economic troubles? What should we be doing? Should we be rooting for China, or should we be rooting for the forces that beset China? Well, look, U.S. and China are still 40% of the global economy. Uh, You look at what's going on uh, at a macro level, Europe's not doing so hot. You know, Germany, France, not doing so hot. It it could enter a recession. United States, that debate's still still outstanding, whether in in a few quarters we might still see some recessionary uh, characteristics. Please not and, before November. And, and, and you know, and the Chinese, uh, even if they stimulate, they're probably not going to get you know too much above five percent this year, which is fine, but not great. So, I think uh, if we're thinking about global economic stability, there's no reason why the U.S. and China should think think about how to how to provide the anchor as forty percent of the global GDP to to, to 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 you know, which they did try to do back in two thousand and eight, two thousand and nine. And I think this is a time that's going to uh, going to be needed more than ever, uh, and, and, and you know uh, the geopolitical volatility aside. Can you um, imagine China having a, a major financial crisis that threatens to bleed into the global economy, and the U.S. stepping up in the way that China did in two thousand eight? Well, I don't think the the nature of the crisis is going to be uh, that sort 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 of a global contagion like that because it's not going to come from the finan- formal financial sector. Right. It's mostly going to be a domestic debt crisis, but a China that grows. Below its potential is 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 not a good thing when there is when the world needs growth, and I think markets investors are going to be looking for growth, and if all the big three pillars the EU the United States and China, you know their trifecta are all kind of you know anemic, uh, that's not a that's not a good outcome for the global economy. Absolutely, Lizzie, what are your thoughts on this? And then I'll leave it to Chang Tai for the end. Right, so I'm going to answer a slightly different question of like what the United States. Like what doesn't work for the United States? Okay. I think by making China look bad, by making China do bad, that clearly does nothing to 
you know, for, for the United States to strengthen itself. And I see a lot of deflections, reflections in the media when it comes to China from policymakers. I do think the United States need to think harder about what its own strength is and what its own course is. I think ultimately the United States can only become stronger by becoming stronger. It won't become stronger by making China look like a bully, making China look weak. I mean, I don't want to go like full therapist on this, but I think there's a lot of a lot of soul searching for the United States to do, and it has nothing to do with what China looks like in the future. Run and, faster, goddammit, and stop trying to flip the other guy. <laughs> I don't think that's completely right. So I let let let, let, let me try, try to articulate what what I think the U.S. is struggling with. That for a long time, I think that we we have all believed, and it's true, of course, that everybody gains from trade and investment. If China grows, the U.S. gains. If the U.S. grows, China gains. I, I don't think there's any doubt about that. What the U.S. is struggling with is the question of. Suppose that, or let, let me put it this way. Uh, I'll, 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 I'll give an uh, analogy. Suppose that there's a powerful CEO, right? The, the owner of a company that you know or that you believe is a racist, okay? And if that person is poor and they're a racist, it doesn't matter uh, because they have no money, right? They, they, they have no money. The question is, what if this person is worth a trillion dollars? And this person fundamentally, I mean, it's, fu- uh, it's, it's not a problem if this person just wants to buy a fancy yacht. With, with and now we're talking about Elon Musk. Yeah, right? no, 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 that, that's a question. Suppose that Elon Musk is going to do stuff that you fundamentally disagree with, and he can do it if he has money, right? Uh, the question is, what are you going to do, right? You're going to lose if you don't buy that Tesla, right? You, you love that Tesla, uh, you, you, you love that, that Tesla, but you buy that Tesla, and that person starts to do stuff that you fundamentally disagree with, right? And I think that is the tension. I mean, that that is what the U.S. is really struggling with. So it's it's really that, right? It's really and 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 it's a spiral that that, that that's going on, which which is this fear in the U.S. on what are you going to do with your economic power, right? And then on the other side, in the U, on the Chinese side, there's this widespread belief that the goal of the U.S. is to destroy China, right? Uh, and this speaks to the question about, oh, you know, China faces a hostile environment, so we got to build res, we got to build, we've got to build resilience. And so you can see how these two views of the world easily reinforce each other, and you could start off with a situation where. You know, China has no intention towards the rest of the world. That Elon Musk is really a nice guy, uh, is is really a nice guy. But then you start to do stuff towards him, and Elon Musk feels threatened, uh, feels threatened. Then they start to do, then they start to do so. And I think that is the spiral that we are on, and that could get both sides to do things that they originally did not want to do. So, what should U.S. policy uh, be? I don't know. Right? It's really. I mean, I think that that's a very dangerous spiral that we, we are on now. Convergence on capabilities, divergence on values. Yeah. Is, so is, we should all go home tonight and ponder deeply the question of whether China is Elon Musk or Bill Gates. <laughs> and uh, that will shape our... This is, 
or or somebody even you know he's not George Soros, but it's endogenous. That that's part of what what I'm saying. That that whether somebody becomes Elon Musk or Bill Gates is endogenous, right? Right. It's endogenous. that's part. Uh, I don't think it's entirely. I think that that you know the way that we treat that person also de- uh, determines course. how yeah, right. right. Not entirely endogenous question. All right, folks. Thank you so much for coming and for for joining us in this great conversation. And Damien Ma, Kang Kai Xie, and of course Lizzie Lee. All right. <laughs>